0: The alien's first words were, let's play ball. <laughs> Today on Dumpster Book Club for our March Madness special, we're talking about Idle Pleasures by George Alec Effinger. I'm Sean. And I'm Mimi. If you say this author's name fast, it's George, I Lick a Finger. Kind <laughs> of. This has one of the best covers. Yes. It is some humans shooting a basketball and then a tiny stubby green alien (laughs) (laughs) leaping to block the shot.
1: Uh, These aliens are super funny on their own because they're so short and stocky. No necks. Their head just gets wider and wider as it goes (laughs) down into their body. They've got big heavy boots and a little breathing apparatus. But they look especially comical, just surrounded by a whole team of human basketball players. Is he jumping this high? He looks like he's in zero gravity. (laughs) But the story doesn't have zero gravity.
0: The aliens also never say, let's play ball.
1: (laughs) No, they say something else (laughs) that we'll talk about later, but... So, I think there's a lot more to read about George Alec Effinger than I read because it started out fun and lighthearted, but the more I read, the more depressed I got. (laughs) So, I can give you this information in chronological order and we just end on a really depressing note, or I can give you the irreversible version where we get all the bad stuff out of the way and then it darkly colors everything else that we learn throughout (laughs) his biography. (laughs) uh (laughs) do you want the good news first or the bad news
0: i guess the bad news first
1: george alec effinger he died pretty young at 55 from an ulcer and internal bleeding most likely because he couldn't afford his health care oh he had health problems throughout his life that led to complete bankruptcy and he was completely in debt to the hospital
0: oh no this is sad and
1: because of how louisiana's like laws work there was a possibility that all of his copyrights works and characters could have been legally claimed by the hospital (laughs) but they just didn't show up uh, they didn't send a representative to his bankruptcy hearing, so he managed to keep those rights at least. He was known to his close friends as Piglet, <laughs> which was a nickname from his youth, which apparently he disliked. okay. <laughs> he looks like a used car salesman. Jolly round guy, big mustache. Yeah,
0: th- that's kind of what I imagined, actually.
1: <laughs> um, but otherwise, I mean... He seems like just a huge nerd and kind of a jokester. Uh, a lot of his stories he wrote under under the pseudonym O. Niemond And that's supposed to be a pun because I think Niemond is based on the German word for nobody. And the initial O is supposed to be zero or a reference to O. Henry. And well, everything he wrote under this um, pseudonym was also a pastiche in the voice of a different major American writer. Like Mark Twain and Flannery mm, O'Connor. That's kind of fun. Reminded me a little bit of Lynn Carter, but he's a little better coming up with cool ideas.
0: I think this author would be more fun doing Keswick than the author who did Keswick.
1: Yeah. Well, that's all I have. That's that's the <laughs> the most lighthearted fun stuff I have.
0: <laughs> so this, despite the sexy title, is is a collection of short stories about science fiction and sports.
1: <laughs> and each each story has a little introduction that he wrote beforehand.
0: Yes, the introductions are so like inane and dumb. <laughs> they would have been so much better if he just didn't introduce them. He just shows his hand as like how uninteresting he is.
1: <laughs> um yeah, they were a little bit off-putting at first, especially the very first introduction, which was the first thing I read starting this book, because he's like, it's, it's really hard to write good science fiction, and it's really hard to write a good sports story. So just imagine how hard <laughs> it is to write a good sports science fiction story. They were just so, like, conversational- I don't know. They kind of grew on me by the end.
0: (laughs) So a little aside, I've only read one sports book in my... No, I've read two sports books (laughs) in my entire life. One was a novelization of the Mighty Ducks movie, (laughs) which was great. (laughs) And another one, a teacher in middle school recommended it to me. Not like outside of class not for class. They Uh just thought I would like this book. And I don't remember the title or the author, but it was about some kid in the country who plays Little League Baseball, but it was really about uh, puberty and being attracted to girls. (laughs) But all I remember about it is a really descriptive blowjob.
1: Oh my goodness. And
0: it really shocked my young mind to the point today where I still think about that (laughs) blowjob.
1: Why did this teacher think you would like this book? I have
0: book? no idea. <laughs> uh, so I am not equipped to critique a sports story. I do not know what makes a good one or a bad one or what you look for in a sports story, a written sports story.
1: Yeah. I don't know if I've read a single sports book, but I did watch Airbud, so.
0: That's cool. Airbud's cool.
1: So I think I can handle this book.
0: Is there an original Airbud? Or, because there's a whole, like hundreds of Airbud movies, but what is the original Airbud? <laughs> the
1: original is the one where the dog does not talk.
0: I <laughs> didn't know the dog talked.
1: <laughs> well, he doesn't talk in the original.
0: Does he talk in all of the other ones?
1: Because
0: mm. maybe I've seen the original then too, because I don't remember him ever talking.
1: I haven't seen every
0: Airbud. <laughs> well, anyway. I don't know if this these stories were particularly effective at merging science fiction and sports mm. where all the stories needed to be science fiction and sports as opposed to just kind of forcing them together which I guess he explains in the introduction is it was hard for him to do so <laughs>
1: Yeah, he has a lot of disclaimers about how maybe this didn't really belong with the (laughs) collection, but...
0: You know, Sonny, I love the baseball. In fact, I wrote a book about it. It's called I Love the Baseball by Vinny the Goose. Available at fine bookstores everywhere. The first story is Naked to the Invisible Eye. And
1: his sort of explanation for this one is that he, he wanted to take just a completely regular sports game, but then give the players like a little bit of a twist.
0: To me, I interpreted this as he kind of had a sci-fi idea, and then he put it in a sports setting. Yeah. Not, the, not a sports idea that he put in a sci-fi setting. Right. It's a baseball story, which I think baseball is his main sport. Based on these stories, he seems to know the most about baseball. In understanding how it's played and what the players are experiencing.
1: It's a pretty nerdy sport.
0: Yeah, it is. It's about a Venezuelan named Rudy Ramirez who has just started pitching for, was a little league team?
1: Like a minor league. Oh, yeah.
0: And he can't speak any English. But throughout his first game, it becomes very clear to the reader that he is telepathically manipulating the batters to not swing at his pitches.
1: So he's on his way to pitching a perfect game by just forcing people to stand there and miss, or not even miss. They just don't swing at all. No attempts.
0: It's not very subtle, when every batter against him does not swing at anything. They explains he's not a super good pitcher either. His fastball isn't very fast, and its curves aren't very curvy.
1: He's just throwing easy pitches, and no one's going for them. Yeah,
0: and along with everyone else who watches the game, the manager, Marinholtz, realizes that something is up, and he gets together with Rudy and the catcher, Chico Guerrera, because Rudy can't speak any English, so Chico's the translator and they get it out of Rudy that he has a psychic power and he doesn't let the batter swing.
1: So yeah, then they come up with a deal and Marenholtz doesn't share the details of his plan with Rudy, which seemed like a mistake on
0: his part. But this deal seems a little shady since Rudy can't speak English and he's signing these contracts where he gives a percentage of his earnings away to this manager.
1: Yeah, and then the manager gets him like actual pitching training so that he can pitch a little better where it's a little more believable and then gets him like signed to a major team or something like that or in front of a major team yeah. uh, recruiter.
0: They also spend a lot of time teaching him ways to use his power more subtly, like making the batter swing just a little late or a little early.
1: Letting them get some hits in.
0: Yeah, not being... Just make it so he looks like he just kind of a mediocre pitcher that for some reason gets a lot of strikeouts.
1: You don't need to pitch a perfect game every game to be a pretty good pitcher. Yeah. It's like if your statistics are just a little bit better... That's good enough to be a good pitcher. Yeah.
0: And this works perfectly, but eventually Rudy feels like he doesn't need the manager and the catcher anymore, and he wants out of the contract. But Marenholtz and Chico sort of stand firm and hold him to his contract. So the next game, Rudy goes back to his system of just not letting any batter swing. And he does this, and the crowd starts Getting more and more upset, and it starts becoming more and more obvious. And then Marenholz and Chico like give up and tear up the contract. And then he he goes back to doing his plan. And that's the end of the story. (sighs) The stories in this book are very short. Other than the last one, none of them is above 20 pages. And some of them are 15 or 7 pages. There's not a lot in them.
1: The story started out pretty boring. And as dumb as the ending was, it at least, like had an ending where I was like, oh, I get it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so with all these stories, I think at the end, I was like, oh, that was a good story. Even though maybe the beginning wasn't. Maybe they weren't that good.
0: At the beginning, it feels pretty racist. The story kind of infantilizes Rudy where it seems like he doesn't understand how baseball works and... Why it would be good to hide that he's a good pitcher. Even when he's talking to Chico, he speaks in these very childish phrases. So just, you know, because he can't speak English, he's he's treated as dumber than everyone else. But then by the end, it seems like maybe that was his plan all along. Like, he, he pitched that perfect game to get noticed so that he could then get to, like, scene to a major league. But he knew about hiding it all along. He just needed to get to the major or something.
1: Yeah. It kind of felt like we were kind of following or meant to relate to the the manager because he's the one we understand everything else is being translated to him. But then it's like Rudy has the arc and Rudy's the one that kind of like tricks him in the end.
0: I think the author misses the... I guess I'm just more interested in sci-fi and not as interested in sports. So what I thought was the interesting idea in this story was... The boundaries of language and communication because Rudy can't speak any English, but he's telepathically stopping these batters from swinging. So there's some sort of like, is there a common brain language? Or is he able to just send a non-verbal command to not do anything? And then how does that affect him not being able to speak English, but he can still telepathically manipulate just other people in other ways? Can he understand what you're saying without actually understanding your words with his brain powers?
1: Yeah, those all sound like pretty interesting ideas. The story was more like middle school P.E. and imagining like what if I had super speed like The Flash? <laughs> and then I just pretend to run the mile. But for me, it's like walking. <laughs> and that's like the limit of my imagination at that time.
0: So in P.E., you imagined being super athletic so that you could be lazy. Yeah. Instead of uh-huh. showing off how cool you were to your peers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so that's what the story made me think of.
0: It also had a line that I thought was really funny, and the sentence just reads, He yelled in Spanish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Welcome to
1: Next story uh, is called From Downtown at the Buzzer. And... The intro really sold this book as a story about how teamwork makes the dream
0: work. <laughs> this is the uh, cover story where some humans play basketball against some short, stubby aliens.
1: <laughs> so this story was written in the first person by some, like a military captain working at a some kind of military base. But he was, like, doing security for nothing. Like, they were just watching a warehouse. Yeah,
0: there was no reason for this military base to exist, or it wasn't clear what they were doing.
1: He loves to play basketball. He and the, the enlisted men play basketball together. Then some aliens called the Kobe appear. They just appear in the president's bedroom in the middle of the night. They won't speak, but they can say yes or no. And they'll answer yes or no questions because they understand English perfectly.
0: Which is pretty easy. If you're struggling to communicate with aliens, that's a pretty good one to get. You can figure out a lot with <laughs> yes and no. And even the our narrator says how, oh, I would have asked them this to figure out stuff. But being able to only ask yes or no questions is too hard for America's top scientists. So they send the Kobe away to this unknown military base to be watched.
1: Yeah, so the scientists are studying the Kobe, but our narrator and friends are just... Supposed to be security and, you know, show them around. The Kobe start to watch them play basketball. They're interested, but they don't say anything. Then eventually they decide they want to play.
0: And then we have the game where the humans face off against the aliens.
1: This whole scene was kind of like those penguins that learned football from watching researchers in Antarctica.
0: I've not heard about that.
1: Uh, one time they went out. And the penguins were forming two lines on the ice. <laughs> and then all at once, they would run at each other and run into each other until they were all on the ground. And then they would get up and do it again.
0: That's adorable. Um, Was there a big human versus penguin game?
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> but The Kobe are actually good at the game.
0: Yeah, they destroy the humans.
1: They're just a little too good. Uh, And it turns out that they're a hive mind, which explains why they're so good. Then there's a scene where the scientists have to give their presentations about what they've learned. They do a lot of PowerPoints.
0: And then the Kobe appear in, in the conference room and one of them walks up and says, Now you honky chumps better dig what's going down. We got to tighten up around here. We got to get down to it. You dig where I'm coming from?
1: <laughs> and then the enlisted men high five. <laughs> and
0: then it's the end. <laughs> Does this mean the aliens learned to talk smack from playing basketball? Or that they were 70s <laughs> basketball cool guys that traveled the galaxy to Earth?
1: I don't know.
0: <laughs> what does this mean?
1: The intro promised the story about teamwork. Can you even call it teamwork if they're a hive mind?
0: Yeah, again, the interesting sci fi story is verbal and telepathic communication with aliens or you know how hive minds work in competition with non-hive mind people and i don't know there's more interesting things to explore in this story than i don't know this weird kind of joke at the end
1: yeah it was like a big setup for this joke
0: what is a man a miserable little pile of secrets but enough talk how about you the next story is the exempt
1: The intro to this one mostly just makes fun of running and runners.
0: He doesn't consider it a real sport.
1: He doesn't seem to be a fan of running either.
0: (laughs) Yeah, did you see? He says, if anyone's ever tried to run a quarter mile in one go. (laughs) I'm not in great shape, but I think I can run a quarter mile without stopping.
1: uh. And this was definitely one of the shortest stories.
0: And least sporty. You didn't yes. consider running a sport, and this one was the least sport involved. New. Can you stop doing that? <laughs> I can't read it. Yeah. Sorry. Stop. Don't highlight.
1: <laughs> I thought you were mad that I was doing this. <laughs> no.
0: You were just like <laughs> I'm trying to read.
1: (laughs) (sighs) Sorry. Okay, so this is a story about a couple... Bob and Susie, they're living in New York, and they just pick up and move their life to New Orleans. Then, through complicated dialogue between them and between them and their l- new landlord, there's something available to them called uh, their alternates. And the landlord is too annoyed. He doesn't want to explain it. He makes a maintenance man explain it to them. And we're just trying to figure out what the alternates are and what this means.
0: More than half the story is getting to what are alternates.
1: It seems like it's basically some kind of alternate reality that they can pick from. At first I thought it was just kind of like their apartment can become a different apartment. Um, But it seems to also bleed out into the rest of their lives as well. It was interesting because like all these options or alternates that they had were like Slightly different, but none of them seemed perfect. There's always something wrong. Like, you could pick, like, a super fancy apartment room, but maybe it didn't have a bathroom. Or, like, something's always wrong with it or missing, even if it has a really fancy feature.
0: Yeah, and the landlord suggests that if they were wealthier, they would have better alternates that affect more of the world.
1: The story kind of cuts to a few weeks later... They've been living in this apartment and living in New Orleans, which they say is the entropic capital of of the world or something, or the alternate that they've picked at this moment has, like, mythological gods, specifically Greek gods, I guess. Like, Hermes is sitting on his shoulder while he's running and giving him advice and stuff. It's like he's kind of taking the role of, like, a shoulder angel or your conscious or something. But it's kind of funny. have one of the Greek gods taking that role because I don't think they're particularly known for their stellar morality. yeah. Um, and yeah, he's sitting there just kind of being annoying and telling him to do dumb stuff.
0: (laughs) Yes, and this is the sport part. He's running right now while this is happening, but just, you know, just going on an exercise run. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and that may or may not have something to do with the reality that they picked, where in this reality, they're a little bit more willing to do exercise. I guess there's a little bit of discussion between him and Hermes about this, and it's not really clear how much choosing the different realities are actually changing your brain or your personality or what's really changing or happening. Yeah, and then while they're on the run, Hermes is trying to convince Bob to have an affair he starts like showing him visions of things, and he shows him a woman who looks exactly like his wife but has a sexier personality. but then he runs past a fountain he doesn't he doesn't do it the end.
0: Well, we don't know if he does it or not. Oh, okay. he just runs past a fountain. I feel like maybe I'm too dumb to get this story. <laughs> I don't know if it's supposed to be a reference or a retelling of something. Maybe it's obvious to someone else what it is. There's a ton of clues throughout the story, but they don't mean anything to me. This story is full of very specific analogies. There's all these asides where... He just spends some time describing the carpet in his apartment as green glass seas with white-capped oceans. And and there's tons of them. And they're all incredibly specific and not really... I don't know, in such a short story to have all these analogies about things aren't part of the story. It felt like it was trying to really lead me somewhere. And then all the characters are really specific and really weird. Bob and Susie, they're not able to express themselves when they talk. They have these complicated thoughts. Thoughts, but then when they come out, they're very short, three-word statements and factual statements and stuff. They can't say anything creative or illustrative to each other. And then the God alludes to this argument that Bob and Susie are having, where Bob wants some sort of change, but then Susie doesn't want the change, and he says he made sacrifices and then she made sacrifices, and neither of them will state to each other what the change they want is and neither of them will state what the sacrifices are and neither of them know what the change or the sacrifices are <laughs> they only say change and sacrifice and then at the end of the story the fountain has a really specific description there were two cherubic boys sitting on turtles on either side in the middle was a tall woman naked from the waist up with a bird and a duck it didn't make any sense So, I don't know. Why is it called The Exempt?
1: I kept forgetting the name of the story, and I wrote The Excluded in my notes.
0: Did, this, did you know what this was?
1: Uh, no. I don't think so. The way I read it, I thought maybe it was a story about, like, depression and kind of, like, generally being unhappy with something without even knowing what it is. And, like, he's like just trying to fix his problems by moving and changing his name and looking for this like better life and then he ends up in this apartment where he can just pick whichever reality but there's always something wrong then i guess the other theme is kind of like i don't know how much of yourself can you change but still be yourself and like are these alternates really changing him or Is it the experience of making these choices that's changing things? Or, um, I don't know.
0: Yeah. There's some cool sci-fi stuff in there too, with the alternates, uh, specifically that does changing to a different alternate change you or what if there's an alternate where Susie's different, but he's not and all this other stuff. I think what you said makes sense, but it's still not specific enough It's like when you watch a movie and then the moral is God and you're like, oh, I didn't catch any of that because I haven't read the Bible. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I feel like if there's some old text that I haven't read, all of this would make sense to me.
1: Yeah, it definitely felt like that, but I don't know.
0: The next one is 25 crunch split right on two. Uh,
1: The intro for this one had such like a dramatic buildup where he's talking about the two kinds of stories that he likes, which are stories about major obsessions like Moby Dick and the Count of Monte Cristo. And then, you know, these stories about major losses. And he thinks that like that could explain this book. But then he's like, just kidding. This is just a story about football.
0: But it's not a story about football at all. No. Football could be anything else. Specifically drugs. (laughs) Because that's what football was in this story. Yeah. So this book starts with a football player. Eldon Macday is having a flashback to a dinner with his wife. And it cuts between this and a football game he's playing. And as it's going back and forth... You figure out that every time he gets hurt, he flashes back to this dinner with his wife. Uh, it's assumed that his wife is dead, or he hasn't—they've broken up or something—and he hasn't seen her in a long time, so he really wants to see her.
1: Yeah, it's like every time he's like—I mean, I thought he's like getting knocked out, basically. Yeah,
0: but in at one point in the flashback, his wife gives him a ring, and then at the end of the game, he realizes he has two of the same ring. So it's something more than just a flashback.
1: So then during their practice matches and all this stuff, he's he starts deliberately trying to push himself too far, do everything he can to basically get injured so that he does get knocked out. And it's like he has to hurt himself more and more to get those little flashbacks. Um, and he figures out it's only during like the heightened tension of an actual game where he'll be able to like move forward in the flashback.
0: So the story is just him progressing through this dinner with his wife and you wondering what's going to happen at the end. So the conclusion is some gangsters show up and they're trying to make it so he won't play football anymore. So they throw his wife in front of a car and she's killed in a car accident. And then he wakes up from this flashback and a cabinet has fallen on top of his legs and they're so broken he'll never be able to play football again the end i thought this one was kind of the most enjoyable story in the group i mean it didn't have a lot to it or anything but it was i liked it and it was simple and
1: yeah it was simple straightforward but i thought it did a really good job of building that tension what happened to his wife that mystery until the final reveal
0: and the the character was interesting, too. Yeah. He had a, he had some, you know, he had interesting characteristics about him. Enough with a small talk. Let's play ball. All right. Let's play ball. On the mound today. And then was the pinch hitters, <laughs> which was the, the second shortest story. And his
1: intro is just. About how he didn't want to have two stories about baseball, but this isn't really a baseball story. It's a story about science fiction itself. (laughs) And it's also, like, somewhat autobiographical, or at least the characters are based on him and his friends, who are also science fiction writers. But they made him change the names.
0: The publishers did, not his friends. Oh, right. You know what's funny is... Throughout my whole life, I learned this before this story, but I never knew if it was pitch hitters or pinch hitters.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Cuz I
0: Are they pitching in or are they in the pinch? <laughs> you need this other hitter.
1: I think it's that one. Um so in this story, our narrator wakes up and gets a call from his friend
0: our narrator is George Alec Effinger.
1: Yes. And he wakes up and gets a call from his friend, but he doesn't sound like his friend because he and all his friends have been transported into the bodies of famous baseball players in the past. He looks at his body and is like, whoa, it's all big and hairy.
0: <laughs> the classic baseball body.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I guess... He has, like, one, like, smart puzzle friend who's figured out who everybody is and has gotten in touch with them, even though they're all in different cities on different teams. And they talk about what they're going to do and how did this happen to them? Who did this to them?
0: hmm And then to solve it, they just make believe, like, they're sci-fi authors. And then eventually reality switches back. And they're back to being sci-fi authors. <laughs>
1: Yep. They got out of it the same way they got
0: into it. That's the part I didn't understand. Were they just talking about too much baseball together or something? And they just make-believe to themselves back into baseball?
1: I don't know. They were all having a slumber party together when this thing happened. It's kind of what they do is write, like, well, what if this happened? And then what if it really did happen?
0: This just seems like a fun little thing he wrote for his friends. And then he tricked the publisher to put him in, <laughs> putting this in the book.
1: Yeah, that that's about that for the pinch hitters. I did like all the parts where he's really concerned that like this baseball player is going to like steal his career, <laughs> uh, like as a writer. <laughs> While he's in the body of the baseball player,
0: yeah, like the baseball player is gonna be a better writer than him.
1: <laughs> and I liked uh, one of his friends su- like suggesting that you know they could be really good writers because like they could write Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> and they could write all these other things like that hadn't been written yet.
0: There was a hint of time paradox talk in there because they're back in the past yeah so if oh but this baseball player didn't write star wars so that wouldn't work
1: or the part where he thinks about going to go see his child self but then he'd have to see his his brother as a child and that's like too horrible of an idea (laughs) so he doesn't do it well just a fun goofy story
0: The next story is Breakaway.
1: The intro to this one was pretty funny because he's just, again, making fun of hockey and people who like hockey because it looks like there's no precision and hockey players look really awkward struggling on their skates sometimes. But then he learned that the skates add an additional challenge and maybe hockey isn't so dumb after (laughs) all. And then he ends it with... In Breakaway, I took the hazards of the games and made them a million times worse. Just for the hell of it.
0: So this story is what I imagined the whole book was going to be like before I started reading it. Where it's, it's hockey, but it's on an ice planet. And the whole <laughs> planet is the rink. <laughs> That's what I imagined all these stories are going to be
1: like. Yeah. So this is like people struggling to colonize or survive on this ice planet and then they play this ultra hockey the field that they play on is like at least three miles oh it's a 14 hour game (laughs) and the players are like it's just such a big area that they're alone a lot of the time it's like you have to sneak and do all these maneuvers to like get across the miles of ice without the other team knowing. And uh, But if you fall, you can just die.
0: Yeah, so I don't know a lot about how ice works, Mimi. <laughs> I know it comes from the freezer. <laughs> uh-huh. And if it gets too warm, it melts into water. <laughs> and sometimes there's frost on my windshield in the morning. Yeah. So maybe you can explain how ice works to me. I understand that, you know, as you skate, it creates a little bit of friction. So the ice melts a little bit under your skates. And that's a little bit how ice skating works.
1: Well, in this story, the ice is not necessarily water.
0: It's so cold. It's like frozen other stuff.
1: Yes, because there was some sublimination happening. Where the ice was turning directly to gas. That's a thing that can happen sometimes. Mm
0: -hmm. So he fell, which the friction of him falling heated the ice. And then when he like stopped moving as he fell, it froze again. So then he was stuck to the ice. That, I think, is what it said happened. And then he sticks his hand out of his suit and touches the ice so that his body heat melts it. And then... He can pull his other arm away so he can stand up, but then it breaks his arm off. It's like frozen, stuck to the ground.
1: Yeah. He has
0: his breakaway, and then he had a breakaway when he got ahead of the Defenders. All the titles of these books are kind of like dumb puns, except for The Exempt, which we don't know (laughs) why it's called that. Couldn't he have just left that hand in his spacesuit and just rubbed the ice to make the friction? To melt, if the friction is what melted it in the first place,
1: I'm not sure actually if it was the friction that melted it, or I think it was um, like a component on his suit that was generating heat that melted the part that his helmet got stuck in, and then like he couldn't bend to maneuver that piece to touch the uh, the ice around his helmet. It was a little confusing.
0: They said friction a lot of times, but I don't know. And also, I'm dumb, so...
1: (laughs) I didn't stop to try to figure it out. I just like, this doesn't really make sense what happened, but I get he's stuck and he's going to have to lose his hand. Those are just the (laughs) facts here.
0: Yeah, and the narrator even says, you know, maybe there's a better way to do this and I'll realize how dumb I was later, but right now I was so messed up from the fall and... Yeah. Stress and stuff. So then he, yeah, he separates his arm, waddles back, finds some other people, and then they pick him up in the end.
1: He makes the final score. Oh,
0: yeah. He, he's crazed and determined. So he makes a goal first.
1: <laughs> um. Well, do you have any additional thoughts about Breakaway?
0: No, this is this is so generic.
1: I kind of like this one, too. Um, but yeah, it was pretty.
0: If it was, it was fun. But if it was any longer, it would have been pretty bad. Yeah. But it's just long enough where you you didn't feel bad that you just read this kind of lame thing, sci-fi hockey game.
1: This story also made me think of one of the James Blish stor- short stories that we read which had kind of a similar setting. And the main character of in the James Blish story was like, he was like one of those first hybrid humans. Oh, yeah, like, I remember. So stoic, sto- so emotionless, no motivation, just walking around like a robot, but also he can survive on this incredibly harsh right. climate and planet.
0: Yeah, because the main character in this is his character is so determined and hockey's the only thing
1: yeah. he's the best at it. Um, yeah. The main character in breakaway Zay um, at the beginning when he's, they're kind of like training or like they're in the locker room. He is completely like just stoic, tough guy, no emotions, but it was like everything else around him is, interacted with him in that way like all his teammates were like kind of off put by him and they attempt to make small talk and get frustrated and give up it's like the story is aware that he's completely Mm. emotionless but then later in the story also we find out that it's because the only thing he really cares about is hockey so we finally see all of his emotions and motivations come out because he's basically just living for hockey and he has that hockey orgasm (laughs) and uh and then also once he falls and gets stuck to the ice like at first he's kind of like shocked by that and then the panic really sinks in when he's just alone with his thoughts and so i don't know it just uh I think George Alec Effinger is a much better writer than James Blish was.
0: <laughs> so now, the shortest and best story <laughs> The Horse with One Leg.
1: So what's this a story about, Sean? (laughs)
0: Uh, Well, a young girl living on a ranch has a horse that gives birth to another horse with one leg. (laughs) Uh And then that horse hops around on his one leg and it can hop so fast that they're going to put it in a horse race.
1: They put a little saddle on it so she can ride it around on its <laughs> one leg.
0: And then it races and it wins, but it uses all of its energy and it breaks its leg. And then they have to put it down. <laughs> 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 this story is is six pages.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep.
0: George says it's too emotional. Oh my god! In the intro,
1: this story was gross.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, do you imagine that it was one of the back legs, (laughs) one of the front legs, or is some other kind of leg? Like, is it a leg in the middle? middle?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It it changed. As I was reading it, I think. (laughs) And my brain settled on a back leg. So he's like upright on this back leg.
0: Uh, Okay, so do you imagine that it it had its back leg and then its body was like balanced forward? Or that its body was straight up from the back (laughs) leg too, so it was really tall?
1: Straight up. Like
0: a a man.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. Just imagine this.
0: It's horrible. So then did she ride on its shoulders with her legs around its head?
1: No, still on the back. And she would probably have to like lean back and the horse would have to lean forward a little bit for it to balance. And I imagine it would have to lean forward as it's hopping anyway to get the momentum going.
0: Oh my God. Well, if this horse wore pants.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this story was kind of like Charlotte's Web or uh, Stone Fox, if you had to read either of those. I don't know
0: what Stone Fox is.
1: So Stone Fox is a story about dog sledding. There's a kid who enters this competition, but there's a big, scary, tough guy named Stone Fox who always wins. He and his little dog, they do so good, but spoilers... Dog dies like 10 feet from the finish line and Stone Fox catches up and then he carries the child's dead dog across the finish line so that he wins.
0: Stone Fox does?
1: The kid wins.
0: But Stone Fox carries the dead dog. That story's moral seems like that kid was irresponsible pet owner. You know, you give your kid a dog so they can learn responsibility, not enter them in a contest that they're not... (laughs) <laughs> ready for and kill your dog
1: What was this girl doing with her messed up horse?
0: <laughs> yes, she also needed to learn responsibility.
1: Uh, but they they won the race and she won all the prize money. So did the kid in Stone Fox.
0: Yeah, but that's not really learning the lesson of being responsible for something. <sighs> It's like trading in a child for 200 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, your kid's expensive. 200 bucks is basically profit. Uh, Budapest, that's pretty tricky. And the Fajarovic variation. That is, and this really strange move I've never seen before. And there may be a reason, maybe there's a reason I don't see this move before. Let's see. Queen d5, bishop b4. Knight d2, knight d2. It's
1: the last story. Heart stop.
0: Do you know why it's called Hard Stop?
1: No, I never. Okay. Never figured that one out.
0: So, this is a story about the great sport of chess.
1: Yeah. The intro just chess is a sport. <laughs> 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 That's an idea I can get behind in high school. I was a bit of a mathlete myself, <laughs> <laughs> representing my school at the. Uh, the The Bay Area Math Olympiad.
0: I do like that this story does represent chess accurately. (laughs) Chess is, you know, seeing farther ahead in the game than your opponent. Like, seeing more steps ahead and recognizing their strategy and them recognizing yours and hiding your strategy or something. Which is never what people... Whenever someone says it's like chess in a movie or something, it's never that. It's never like chess. But this one, it's like chess. <laughs> what was that movie we watched where he set up all his pieces one by one, and then they struck at once? <laughs> just like chess. <laughs> Do you remember what movie that oh was? Oh, my God.
1: Uh, No. But that sounds so familiar.
0: I think we watched it pretty recently. It was bad.
1: (sighs) That's not how chess works.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what we were yelling at the movie (laughs) the whole time.
1: Uh, Oh, the story does also portray a game of fairy chess, which is I think that's a real thing where you play with like you change the rules in like a different way and changes the game completely.
0: Mm hmm. Anyway, the story starts with kind of an interesting transition where it starts with this description of a town and how remote it is and then describing the diner and what the diner is like. And then it sort of seamlessly transitions into the narrative where the main character newbie, a salesman, has entered the diner and is ordering dinner.
1: Yes. That introduction I thought was really creative because it's like... The metaphor about the town becomes a framing device for the rest of the story.
0: Yeah, it it puts it all in another world or inside a story right from the beginning.
1: It starts out, we're just talking about distances, and to explain how far things are, it's like, well, if a salesman you know, stopped to ask for directions... But then it just keeps talking about what would happen to the salesman. And then suddenly we're in the story and the salesman is the main character.
0: Yeah. And the salesman is looking for a hotel, but the town doesn't have one. So he ends up using a room from a woman named Aunt Rozji, who offers the room for free if he'll play a game of chess with the local drunk Old man do free.
1: And the salesman's just like so frustrated that everything is taking so long and that he's stuck in this middle of nowhere town. And but he finally agrees that he's gonna have to play this chess game.
0: Um, and the chess is horrible. Reading about someone play chess is pretty horrible. Yes. Cause I'm not gonna break out my chessboard and <laughs> look at what because I don't have the locations memorized. Like, he describes all the moves and stuff, but I...
1: I don't even know if there was enough detail for you to really figure out. But they just... It's just the dialogue of all the characters also talking about the moves. Yeah. And now you're now you're really in a tough situation and
0: all this stuff. It is better than in some movies and stuff where they portray Chess as this epic battle, but then you can't really, like, see what they're doing, or... Yeah. Like, chess is two guys going, mm, I see, it's the, uh... <laughs> <laughs> the counter maneuver of this. Well, I'll do this. Which is what this kind of does, but is really boring to read.
1: It felt intentionally frustrating and a little bit hypnotic because it kept kind of going in circles where, like, the same scenario in this game kept happening over and over like
0: yeah um they kept saying the same phrases too yeah
1: like it just kept kind of repeating the same sort of cycle for like two or three pages which reading that was like not interesting reading but it felt like the readers were forced to experience what newbie was experiencing (laughs) Just the frustration and also how this is kind of how he gets sucked into this yeah. weird stuff that's going on.
0: It makes more sense later, but I was still expecting this to be like the other sports story. So I was like, oh, God.
1: <laughs> like, is this the rest of <laughs> the have, book? I like,
0: 30 more pages of this. <laughs> this is the long story. It's like 50 pages almost. They pause their game because Newbie is winning too much. And... Newbie goes back to Aunt Rosji's house where he has a dream. And the dream is very surreal where he meets a young girl and then Aunt Rosji and Old Man Defree show up and the girl catches on fire from the inside of her body and dies. And then he wakes up and he sees that his car has been stolen in the morning so he can't leave.
1: Now he's really
0: mad. <laughs> yeah. And he goes back to the diner To play more chess while he waits for the police station to open. But then it turns out what happened in his dream actually happened.
1: And now the police are caught up in this murder case. And he's like, well, great. When am I going to get my car?
0: While he's talking to the police, he meets with Aunt Rosji and Old Man DeFree outside of the diner, and they ask him to come over and help them with this activity that they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) And they're doing some sort of ritual with this tree, and he has to speak a part of the ritual with them. And as they do it, this woman who is nearby uh, freezes from the inside and then dies. And then he wakes up as if he was in a dream back at the police station. Uh, Again... It turns out that that really happened, too. And then more chess happens, but now Aunt Rozji is changing the rules to make fairy chess.
1: And she's always, like, making it easier for Old Man Dufree to win.
0: Mm -hmm. But also, kind of slowly in the background of the story, Newbie is losing track of reality, and sort of changing at the same time. He starts caring less and less about things. First, he's really angry and frustrated, and he starts just sort of going along with things. And Old Man Dufree gives him this paper quiz he wrote out for him.
1: Was it the old man or the waitress?
0: It was the old man. The quiz is all multiple choice questions like, what is today's date? And then... Newbie can't figure it out. And he's like, well, this one seems the closest.
1: (laughs) They're all like years apart.
0: Yeah. Like he
1: doesn't know what year it is. And it's like,
0: what is tomorrow's date? None of them are close to (laughs) the other one. And then there's a, where are we? What state is this? And he he can't really figure any of them out. Uh, Also, he starts seeing the waitress outside of the diner, but she's not the same person. Because he sees them together, and the waitress is, like, threatening her with a broken bottle, and she disappears. (laughs) And after this, he is invited to do a reading to a youth group, which he just does because he just accepts things now. Yeah. And he sees some flaming letters appear before his eyes, and he reads those, and it kills all the children that he was reading to. And he just sort of accepts this, too. The police
1: show up and they're like so horrified that all these children have been killed. I think one of them is like, you know, do you like break down and cry? Or he yeah, has one, one of those moments where it's like, never on so all my years of the force.
0: <laughs> and when the new guy throws up.
1: And, and the, and newbies just like, like what?
0: <laughs> it turns out aunt Rosji and old man Dufree are using magic. To kill these people and also to turn Newbie into a kind of shell of a person, like kind of removing his humanity or his soul or something. And they're going to make him take the blame for the murders.
1: But then he, like, goes into the dream world and f- he s- defeats his dream self.
0: It seems like he leaves the physical world and goes to, like, the world of forms. Uh, Like a truer plane of existence where he would be completely made into a shell, but he was able to get back out and Aunt Rosgy and Old Man Defree decide that they like him, so they're not going to frame him uh, and decide to make him a part of the town. And that's it. Wow. I thought this was pretty great (laughs) because it doesn't fit at all into this collection of short stories. no and i think that's the best part because it it's catches you off guard and sucks you in and surprises you so much to just read this at the end when you're expecting just another thing and i don't know i i was it did its trick on me so i thought it was very effective um however the chess was still pretty brutal to read i get why it was like it was a part of the ritual and like the repeating but it's like I don't know, also uh, laborious.
1: It wasn't that bad if you skimmed it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Did you have any thoughts on this book as a whole?
0: This kind of feels like George Alec Effinger got some other book published and then he used that clout to publish a bunch of his extra stories. (laughs) Um, But I thought it all worked. Heartstop was a great treat At the end of the book, and I don't think it would have worked if the rest of the book was as strange and interesting as Heartstop. So to me, it was worth it to read 180 pages of kind of good, kind of bad, kind of boring stuff to have that like one little spike of excitement, weirdness, interestingness. Um,
1: Yeah, it was a pretty good variety of stories given that the the theme was so specific (laughs) with science fiction sports stories but there was like a lot
0: i could have done without the shorter ones
1: You could have done without the horse with one leg
0: yeah and the exempt and the pinch hitters who do you think this book is for
1: if you cried during air bud (laughs) this book might be for you
0: so you can cry when the one-legged horse gets across and have to shoot it? Uh,
1: I don't know. I think George Alec Effinger seems like a big nerdy goofball. And I think that he wrote this book for other big nerdy goofballs. I I actually really liked this book a lot. Oh. Um, this is the best book we've read in a long time. It's
0: certainly in a while. Uh, that's also surprising because I think generally you don't like short stories as much.
1: I don't, but I think that he really knows how to write a good short story. (laughs) All the other short story collections we've read on the podcast, I did not like, but the best thing about them was that they were short. (laughs) I think these stories, like if they had been longer... They probably wouldn't have been good. Like he had a a funny idea and he set it up and paid it off, wrapped it up. And you have your little moment at the end where you go, oh, I get
0: it. Or whatever it was. I guess I didn't like it as much as you did. I felt a lot of the stories missed their mark or could have been more efficient or focused more on the interesting topic. And we were sort of forced into this genre. And I don't know who this book was for because I don't think a sports fan would like it. And I don't, I think as a science fiction fan, I was kind of disappointed by the sports stuff and the lack of science fiction focus. But I, I do genuinely think it was worth it to get to that interesting turn uh, of the last story. But then if someone's listening to this podcast, they won't have that fun change because they already know it's coming. (sighs) But also, I think like two people other than us in the world have read this book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Would you read anything else by this author?
0: I don't know. What do you imagine a longer story by this author is like?
1: I have no idea because there were so many different kinds of stories in here and they were all written pretty differently, like different like perspectives and writing styles.
0: Maybe those pastiche ones sound more fun.
1: Those are probably funny.
0: Yeah. If he knows he's doing a comedy, I think that might be the best bet. Well, I think that's it for Idle Pleasures. If you'd like to join us next month, we are reading The Lord of Death and the Queen of Life. By Homer Eon Flint.
1: You can contact us at dumpsterbookclub at gmail.com or join our group on Goodreads.
0: Well, Mimi and I have read a few Books outside of the podcast that are related to things we've discussed on the podcast. So I thought we could share a little bit about them. Do you want to go first, or I have three books. So <laughs> oh, geez. We could split them up. I could do one, and you could do one.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, you start. <clears throat> what did
0: you read? So the first one is "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" by Philip K. Dick.
1: Classic.
0: And I thought this book was so great the the (laughs) word masterpiece (laughs) gets thrown around a lot but if there is one i i I don't know this is pretty close to it
1: uh yeah this one is a classic (laughs) for Um, for good reason
0: so what makes it so great Rico? It's like 200 pages long, and it brings up all these really complicated concepts and philosophical problems about and around artificial intelligence and humanity and what it means to be human and stuff. But it brings them all out within a story, and it does it so naturally you don't realize you're engaging in a philosophical debate the whole time. It's so seamless and... You're just in the narrative enjoying it, but you're, you're thinking about all these different problems around artificial intelligence. And to me, that's kind of the point of sci-fi: is not necessarily just "oh, look, artificial intelligence" or "oh, look, robots" or this other stuff, but to explore the ideas and problems of those things while telling a story. And do androids dream of electric sheep? Is the perfect version of that, I guess.
1: I think this is something I experience every time I stop reading bargain bin books to read something by a good author. (laughs) I remember what books are supposed to be capable of.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think if someone were to ask me for an introduction to sci-fi Or what's a good sci-fi book to read if I don't read sci-fi? I would probably recommend this book over, you know, Foundation or Heinlein or some of those other stuff. Some of that other more classic stuff that gets thrown around. Because I think this really breaks down the goal and point of sci-fi. To me, at least.
1: Yeah, and probably more than just this book. I mean, almost anything by Philip K. Dick is going to be somewhat like that.
0: And I think also just way more accessible. Than a lot of sci-fi. Because it doesn't focus on, oh, this is how the laser gun works and it does this and this. It's it does that doesn't matter. It's what how does artificial intelligence change the way we interact with people?
1: They're also short and easy to read, and all mm-hmm. his short stories are great.
0: Yeah, and Philip K. Dick is is a great writer on top of that. And then I guess if you're concerned about it being like Blade Runner, it has there's no correlation between <laughs> it and Blade Runner. They're nothing alike, other than the characters having the same names. It doesn't even have. The, they're in two different cities. Ones in San Francisco. Ones in L.A.
1: And doesn't uh, have all the same characters either. Yeah,
0: they're they're unrelated. Uh, totally. Wow. This note. What if somebody wrote a book about the Matrix but with bitcoins? <laughs>
1: Is that your next novel? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just read a book called We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is another Shirley Jackson book. This is a book about a spooky weirdo, (laughs) Maricat Blackwood, who hates people. Cool. Uh, She, like, dabbles in the occult and witchcraft and dreads going out in public. It's overall pretty relatable. Yeah,
0: it seems like a popular book.
1: <laughs> uh, and not a lot happens in the plot. And it pretty much entirely takes place in their home. But it's like mostly psychological. And the story kind of develops through dialogue and... It's Shirley Jackson, so, of course, you have a completely unreliable narrator. So, it gets kind of surreal, and sometimes you're not really sure exactly what's true and what's not. And the lesson of the story is that people are disgusting animals, and I hate them, and you should generally avoid them at all costs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this seems like a book that would be popular with most people. <laughs> I don't understand why it's not more well-read.
1: Um... Yeah, so highly recommend.
0: Is it horror or is it scary?
1: Um not exactly, I think there's some like tense moments and stuff like that, but um I don't know, I don't know if you would call this like full-on horror. It's got some of those elements, but it's like the main character is the one like doing witchcraft mm-hmm. and stuff, so and there's some murder and there's some property damage.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm not not sure uh, if this would fall under horror.
0: Okay. Well, so I, I read a book with an unreliable narrator also. I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but my favorite sci-fi author is Gene Wolfe. And all of his books are in the first person. And they're all totally unreliable narrators who will lie to you or leave out information or portray things differently. I read The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which is three not-quite-novellas, not-quite-short stories, all exploring the same concept um, in the same setting with maybe the same character.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You never know with Gene (laughs) Wolfe. You never
0: know. The the great pleasure in reading Gene Wolfe is that the way he sort of explores his own universe, he can be really dense or really vague, difficult to understand, but it's always enjoyable just to watch his characters navigate the world. Uh, this is one of his earlier books, so his characters are less, well, saying they're less developed is a joke. But in his later books, he has much more likable characters, so you enjoy spending your time with them so much. Uh, But this book is all about colonialism and imperialism and identity, what it is to be a person. You can't really say too much about it without spoiling it. (laughs) But he has a really special way of showing a sci-fi world and characters in it. Where most of the time you're not really sure you're actually reading sci-fi or not because it's always told from the first, the first person perspective. So if you imagine I'm going to drive my car to the supermarket, well, one, I probably just wouldn't tell you about that in the first place because it's just like a regular part of my day. I might tell you about some weird interaction I had with someone. Regular parts of your day are in a sci-fi world. They're just normal to you, so they're not worth saying To someone, So you wouldn't explain that your car runs on rocket fuel and flies to Mars or something. Uh, Because you do that every day. It's not interesting. So you only mention these out-of-the-ordinary things because that's when you're telling someone a story. That's what you want to do. So you kind of piece together the sci-fi world from your own information. And since you're already trying to piece the story, the characters, and everything else together from (laughs) the little (laughs) bits of information you get, you're already primed... To putting it together anyway, but Fifth Head of Cerberus is a really good introduction to Gene Wolfe because it's 300 pages instead of a thousand, so you can grasp the whole story in your brain at once, all the themes at the same time, as opposed to you know two or three hundred pages in a go. You're able to hold it all in your head a lot better, instead of having to you know keep a journal with notes and stuff. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And your new novel ideas. (laughs) Um, Uh, Do you think you would read this again from the beginning to get more out of it?
0: Right. So uh, another big thing with Gene Wolfe is he he has stated there's no point in writing a novel to be read only once. Like you're ripping off the person buying the book if they can read the book once and get everything out of it. (laughs) So notoriously, a lot of his books have like a totally different meaning the second time you read it. Again, because this one's so short, uh, it has the three novels or novellas. It's easier to hold in your head all the things and remember back to the beginning than it is with some of his longer ones. So I don't think I need to reread it. It might be worth it. I don't know. And the last book I read was Contact by, what is his name? Carl Sagan. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> that star guy. Yeah.
0: Basically, Contact is just a expanded and over-explained 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> the book is like way bloated. Every chapter starts with two quotes from different <laughs> famous writers of the past. And then there are also parts so each part has two quotes. So there'll be two quotes at this change of a part, then chapter and two more quotes. And then the book starts.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Um, and then there's people always have quotes on their wall of famous people. It's like, <laughs> we get it, Carl, you read a lot. Um, I really enjoyed the first 200 pages or so of this book. Cause it's just about a young girl discovering to love science and physics and stuff. I think overall the point of this book is it's for a young reader to show them the magical world of astronomy and science to get young people more interested in that kind of stuff. The problem is it's over 500 pages and has like no action. It's all just long discussions of different science topics. And they're usually over explained at a low level for younger people so it gets kind of tedious and then same it goes into some of the ph- philosophical quandaries about the topics in the story it's just like this weird in between where it's a 500 page over explained hard sci-fi for kids <laughs> um but i i really enjoyed it i just wish i read it 20 years ago
1: right Do you think that young Sean would have picked this up and been really into it? I think
0: young Sean would have enjoyed it. I think young Mimi would have enjoyed it. I think like the more precocious readerly child would totally eat this book up. And it it probably would be effective too. I I found it fairly inspiring at moments, even at my bitter old age. (laughs) Anyway, that's it. Those are some other things we're reading. (laughs) did i even say anything in that gene wolf one or was i just talking about all the reasons i like gene wolf
1: Uh,
0: (laughs) should i have said what contact is about i feel like the title tells you what